Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you ready? Is it going to be Welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we'll discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. On this episode, we're going to talk about daydreaming and dreaming of days. We've got a segment on Seattle Filmworks. What is it? What was it? Can you shoot it? And speaking of Nebraska, we're checking in with Solomon D. Butcher, a photographer from the late 1800s. But first, Vanya, how have you been? Well, I'm starting to do new things. I guess. <laughs> okay. New things are always good things. Yeah. I put on like eyeliner or like makeup in the morning sometimes. Okay. Because then it makes me feel like I'm actually going to leave the house, even though I'm not. <laughs> You're not going to leave the house. No, it's, it's Sometimes cool. I'll even put pants on. I don't want to get into that. But yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, dude, everything, I, I've been wearing like leggings every single day, which is amazing. But I mean... <sighs> You got to get out of them occasionally. <laughs> I guess. I guess. I don't know if I agree fully with that, but okay, fine, fine. Enough about me. Let's let's hear. I know you've had a bit of a rough week. I, w- I would like uh, to see how you have been. Well, I mean, not great. Um, so earlier this week, uh, I had to put Juniper to sleep. Um, she had she had kidney disease and she just uh she just couldn't shake it really she was in and out of the the kitty hospital uh recently in the past couple of weeks and you know many cats many cats can live with kidney disease a lot of them have like stage two and that's that's fine they can usually pretty well manage that but hers got really bad it got to end stage and uh she began shutting down and just you know for the past week she's just withering away and I don't, I mean, I don't really know what to say about her. If you, if you follow me on Instagram, you know how enormous of a role she played in my life. Uh, if you've ever got a zine from me or a film or the developer or anything, or you've seen, you know, her on my logo, you, you, you she's everywhere in my life. She's everywhere and everything I send out. She's the cat with the antlers. That's, that's Juniper. And like during the recording of many episodes that we've done, almost all of them, she'd be curled up on my lap or walking around on my desk, batting at things, knocking shit over and trying to eat my tape. Um, and it was like a, an editing nightmare, <laughs> but you know, she was, she was adorable. Um, let's see, you've heard her meow in the Christmas episode and, um, I gave her a speaking role. She had a, had a, maybe a little, little bit of a speaking role there. And in the last interview I did with Ethan, that we, that we did with Ethan from Camera Dactyl, you can hear her, her bellowing in the background and, um, that was actually a, a sign that something was really bad and I didn't, I didn't really notice it. Um, when a cat's meow drops and it becomes very loud, that's like a big sign that she was losing her hearing and cats can live being deaf, um, just like humans can just, just, you know, just as well. But it was apparently a sign of a, something larger and a, a really a steeper decline. But over the past week, since she got out of the hospital, I was able to take a, a good number of photos. She always really, really hated getting her picture taken. Um, I don't know if the camera freaked her out or, or what it was, but she hated it. But in the past week, um, and you know, she got into a, a weaker, more lethargic stage, and I was able to photograph that. And it's uh, it's, it's kind of a I don't know, it seems weird to say it's an honor to do that, but it it was you know to capture that. 
Um, I was able to get her on, on, let's have some gear talk. I was able to get her on my Graflex and on the Intrepid and, uh, on the RB. So I got, I got some really, well, I got a couple really nice shots that I know of already, and I've got some that I need to develop, um, which maybe in the next dev party, we can, we can do those. I'm not really to the point where I can tell many funny stories about her. I'll get there. And I, I really, I can't wait to get there, honestly. Um, but I lost a friend. And there's nothing you can really do about that except for just wait it out. You know that eventually, uh, eventually time will, will take care of that for you. But she's awesome and I miss her. So let's uh, go into a little break and then we'll, we'll come back with uh, the answering machine. <laughs> So, okay, we're back, and I, I guess we should probably check the answering machine as we normally do when we're doing normal shows. So Yes. So we asked listeners, when it comes to photography, do you daydream about it, and what specifically? All right, so push the button. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. This is Denise G316 on Instagram, and I often daydream about photography. When I allow my mind to clear, it often wanders to things photographic. Usually about a theme or concept or a basic idea about portraits for my friends, or in the case of art in the age of quarantine, of myself. I don't really think too much about gear or film anymore, because I feel like I have what I need in order to make an image, so I don't... really give too much thought about that anymore so basically denise does daydream about photography even with all this stuff happening right now she is thinking and dreaming up some portraits which is great um i did a little bit of that last week and i think i might try again you should you should it's something that i um i don't think i'd ever do i I definitely haven't done it but i don't think i don't know if i would ever do that And if I did, nobody would ever see it. So I guess I could tell everybody that I have done it. And it was a smashing success. Yeah, I don't know if I'll post it on Instagram. It'll be on my <laughs> Flickr, maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Heyo, Jonas, a.k.a. Collimator on here. Daydreaming about photography, huh? I don't do it that much, but daydream about making cameras. Oh, yeah. Uh, thinking about, oh, look at that thing, that could be a camera, or if I turn that thing on, on the side, it could be that. But I had a nightmare once, kind of a fever dream, that my stomach was a pinhole camera, and I had to, I was so hungry, I needed to feed it light to be satisfied, and I couldn't find any. It was, I think I woke up in a cold sweat or something, it was weird. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, again, uh, a very bizarre message left. Uh, I love these. Um, when I heard it the first time, it was really, it was really needed uh, cheer up here. I mean, we, when we asked Ethan last episode about daydreams, he came up with a, a dream that he had about Mike Gutterman and some nasty living stuff wasn't it? i don't remember exactly <laughs> but but i like this uh you dream that your your stomach is a camera and you're f- feeding it light 
I don't know, maybe he, we, we should hook him up with the uh, Homemade Camera podcast. So, like, most of the people, obviously, that listen to this are film photographers. But everybody has their own little, like, niche in it. So some people really love, like, making homemade cameras. Some people really like developing in, like, odd chemicals. And there's not just, like, one single, like, I take film photography and this is you know, the outline, the standard, everybody kind of creates and makes it their own. And that is completely awesome and special. Do I daydream about photography only all the time? If I think about what's going on right now, where I'm actually stuck with none of my camera gear, all I can think about is what I would do if I had it. I dream about what I'll do in the darkroom. And in fact, I'm daydreaming about it so much that I'm going to do color for the first time in what amounts to a closet, because I have to. He should make a camera obscura. Out of Colin Matorn's tummy. <laughs> yes. Uh, I can't imagine being stuck without my camera gear. Even though we're kind of stuck, I still have it. Yeah, I think I carry a camera. It doesn't have to be like any specific, but I usually just like have one handy. I don't. I don't carry a camera with me when I go places, generally. But... I have them around me, like in front of me is a box camera. To my right is uh, a six, uh, the RB67 and, and your, and your uh, not Holga, the other one, Hauselblad. Oh, same, same thing. thing. <laughs> same thing. And, and behind me is the another Mamiya and the Electro 35. I mean, I've just, I'm surrounded by cameras constantly, and I can't imagine not being. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that sounds like a nightmare. If you need one space critter, I will send you a camera. It probably <laughs> will not be a Hasselblad. It might be like the little, I think I, I have this little camera. It's called the Beretti, I think, or Brett. Okay. I think it was like two bucks, but it's awesome. And I was going to kill it in the water. I was going to just like oh, yeah. put a roll of 35 and just take it in the water. It's not waterproof. I'm just going to take it in there. See what you get. Yeah. But if he wants it, maybe I'll just give it to him. Hey, Vanya and Eric. This is Chris, a.k.a. Rigstifer on Instagram. Absolutely. Um, sometimes it's landscape. Uh, I don't know if you can hear the birds in the background chirping, but I run for the last 20-some years, and so uh, lots of landscape where I live in Germany. And then um, also Helmut Newton has had a huge impact on me. A lot of people, he, you know, divides the spirits, as they say in German. A lot of people think it's just about nudity. A lot of psychoanalysis there, and those kinds of images really fascinate me and what Helmut Newton did with those. There's a documentary coming out about him by the way maybe we could all check it out thanks love your show bye-bye well, thanks that's that's i guess something i really when we, when we started asking the question i didn't really think of like oh daydreaming about shooting in the same way of another as another photographer and i don't think that's a bad thing is it no absolutely we, we we get inspired by people's work i mean i get inspired by people's work all the time i think i, I think i do this i didn't even really consider it daydreaming necessarily but i guess it kind of is like i'll see well like the uh, photographer we're going to be talking about a little bit later uh solomon butcher or let's look at evelyn cameron for example uh, she did a lot of photography in montana and going to the places where she's shot you can kind of really get in the feel for it and the memory you know of what she did is is there and so when you think about going back or going there and shooting there you're daydreaming in a way of what it was like for her to shoot especially shooting back in the 1800s and the early 1900s when it was maybe maybe a, a slightly bit more challenging than it is now. My answer to do I daydream about photography is absolutely yes. I think I'm thinking about photography 99% of the time. 
I see something, I want to photograph it, or I'm thinking about what I could photograph next, or something that I've just taken a photo of that I just absolutely love. Same, same. I think I'm thinking about photography most of the time. And if I'm not, somehow <laughs> I will make it into like, oh, I could do this like as a photography project. I don't know. Just always goes to that. Maybe I'm obsessed. Hey, Eric and Vanya. This is Tim Massey, CTW Photo on Instagram. Uh, this is something I definitely do. Uh, I have lots of portrait projects that I am trying to do. And so as I'm kind of going around town or outside, I frequently think about backdrops and, um, you know, individuals that I'd like to photograph, maybe be part of a um, kind of a, a narrative. I uh, will frequently kind of keep logs, whether mentally or on maps or on uh, little pads of paper and just try to remember where things are located and who I'd like to have and what kind of story I'm trying to tell. So, yeah, thanks for all you do. That I do a lot. Again, I don't think I really considered this daydreaming, but I think it is. Yeah. I remember when I was planning a trip two years ago, I wanted a certain picture of Pawnee Buttes. And if you don't know what that is, give, give look it up. It's a really beautiful national grasslands area with two big buttes kind of offset. And you can get some interesting pictures of the way the sun interacts with them. And so what I did is I went on a some website that tells you where the sun is going to be at a certain time, at a certain day, in a certain place, and all of that. And I was like, oh, if I if I if I'm here at this time, I can get the sun in this position. I can get it maybe between the two buttes mm -hmm. at the sunrise, and I can get it, get these shadows and these these effects at, at a certain time. And so I would daydream about getting those shots, even though I've never been there. I don't know what the land was like. And of course, when I got there, all bets were off. It was just kind of like, uh, oh, I this is I, this is completely different than what I thought it was going to be. But the planning of it required a lot of daydreaming, a lot of like inspiring yourself to keep doing the, just this weird thing of trying to get a shot that you don't even know if, if it exists. And it, and it didn't. It didn't exist. So that, that shot that I wanted exists only in my head as like a, an old daydream. So do you daydream about going back and what you would do differently? Or is it different now? I don't know if I could do anything differently. I would. I want to go back because it's a beautiful place. I guess I, in one, one sense, I probably don't remember what my original shot was going to be. My, my memory has changed, I'm sure, since, especially since being there. Mm -hmm. So I don't remember what my original idea was. Well, like, for instance, like your project that is on hold right now. You developed most of those shots. I developed all of them, yes. So is there any shots that you've decided maybe you're going to go a different direction? And have you like planned out those shots differently for the next time you go? There are some additional shots, but and maybe a shot or two that I won't do. There's some places like Tooley Lake. I couldn't get a good shot there. I tried so hard to get a good shot there. And I just couldn't, I couldn't make it work. And I've never seen a good shot from the place. It's just a, it's not a very picturesque place. Uh, I think you showed me. It's not, it's a hard thing to photograph. It's just hard to find anything interesting to photograph about it, even though it's a really important place. So I'm trying to figure out a way to, to show the importance of this place without <laughs> without showing you how like uninspiring the place actually is just to the eye so yeah i don't i think i'm, I'm purposely avoiding daydreaming about that place because <laughs> it's very frustrating but no i think uh, there's some d additional shots that i want to take and i do daydream about those but there's no shot that i regret taking or would take a different way that i can remember but there are definitely shots that I won't be able to retake because the the sky was perfect and the light was perfect 
and the film again cat labs four by five film ruined it <laughs> so <laughs> that's part of the price you pay with film photography uh hey folks jelly guys here again uh yeah i daydream about photography a lot when i'm that's kind of where i get a lot of my best ideas for pictures and ideas for projects and whatnot is I just kind of zone out or I'm doing something else not really involving my brain and there you go you get pretty good ideas that way I mean maybe possibly they're good I haven't I don't know anyways have a good one and uh stay crisp did you zone out I zoned out (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry it's okay that's okay. What he was saying was he's getting a lot of good ideas when he's zoning out. So since you've zoned out, do you have any good ideas? Yes. What is your good idea? Breakfast. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> So I guess we should probably get around to answering this question ourselves. It's, it's weird. I'm having this weird deja vu that I feel that we've already answered yeah, it. Yeah, we did. Last, I think I talked about it on the last episode. And I can't remember why we talked about it, but let's um let's revisit that again. Um, sure. Maybe we zoned out. So, Fanya, when it comes to photography, do you daydream about it? And what specifically? I am just in one big, long daydream. <laughs> <laughs> So photography sometimes enters that daydream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seriously, I I don't know how I'm still alive, but I am. I'm making it through this life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So my daydreams kind of like change and fluctuate. But right now I've been probably daydreaming about what everybody else is daydreaming about. And that's getting on the damn road (laughs) and finding some open space. And I'm just missing like the dirt underneath my fingernails and truck stop bathrooms. And Uh, I just want to escape Los Angeles. We had trips planned and um, I wanted to shoot four by five and tall grass prairies. And I want to write in my journal about each shot that I took because when I daydream, I'm very organized in my daydream. Doesn't mean that I will be <laughs> when it happens, but <laughs> so strange. <laughs> hey, it's my dream, right? I can I can pick and choose. <laughs> you can. You absolutely can. So yeah, most things obviously have been postponed or canceled, but what I have been doing is also trying to be mindful of all the trips I have taken in the past year. Uh, I was able to have a pretty amazing summer. My daughter and I kind of went on the road together and traveled for two weeks. And I got to actually meet up with you, Eric, in Yellowstone. That was... Yeah, that was me. That was you. Yes. We went down to Mexico and got to surf for a whole week. San Francisco several times. I went to Sequoia, went to Yosemite, you know, a bunch of day trips. I went to Lone Pine. So I definitely do take advantage and try to travel as much as possible. And instead of of being so concerned about what I'm not doing right now, I'm trying to kind of like look back at those memories that I have and realize, hey, like, this is really important to me. I want to continue to do these things in my life. I'm taking a break right now, just like everybody else, and um, try to continue to take advantage of the small bits of time that I'm able to travel and also just be appreciative of what I have done. Yeah. What about you? 
I'm not a big daydreamer. I know I've said in the past, I'm trying to do it more. I think lately, and this is because we're all kind of sheltering in place, I'm purposely not thinking about traveling. And that's weird for me because I'm otherwise always thinking about where my next trip is and what I'm doing next weekend or what I'm doing this summer. And I'm purposely not doing that because there's a chance that it could all be canceled, which if that needs to be done, then that needs to be done. That's that's how it is. But it doesn't mean it's not a bummer. So I don't know that I am at all right now. So um, right now, it's a time for me to just kind of regroup. I didn't take the winter off like I normally do. And so now this is kind of I'm being forced to go not a winter, but a spring off and maybe a summer. I'm just sort of just treading water at this point with photography you know not in a bad way you're, you're staying ahead you're, you're, your head is above the photographic water metaphor that's not really holding together real well here so no nope, not daydreaming but am hoping for the best This is the story of Seattle Filmworks. You can read along with me in your book. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear R2-D2 beep like this. Let's begin now. Seattle Filmworks was founded in 1978 by Gilbert Shearer. His idea was to buy large quantities of color 35mm film, load them into individual rolls of 20 exposures, and sell them at a low cost to the public. If you've poked around on eBay for expired film, you've probably come across a few rolls of Seattle Filmworks, maybe even heard that you couldn't develop it in normal chemicals. Maybe you even bought some, shot it, only to discover that your lab wouldn't touch it. If you looked at the cartridge, the developing instructions read only, process SFT. WXL. Just what did that mean? What is the SFWXL process? And what is the weird and mysterious emulsion of old? And why is everyone so afraid of it? This is a strange little tale, so sit tight and we'll tell it. The story of most film companies is pretty boring. Like any manufacturing business, they produce a product, sell it, then grow or shrink upon demand. There's honestly not much drama to tell when it comes to Kodak, Fuji, or even Agfa. However, Seattle Filmworks is a completely different story. This is a story of a company killed by honesty and dishonesty by free film and the digital age. He sold his rolls for $2 a pop. This was a great deal until the customers realized that they couldn't just drop their film off the local drugstore, but they had to send it back to Seattle Filmworks themselves for processing. From the very beginning, Seattle Filmworks planned on making the bulk of their profits on processing. It's how they kept the price of their film so low. To ensure that his customers would send their film back to him to process, he used a film stock that couldn't be developed in a normal lab. Instead of using your typical color negative film, like Kodak Gold or Fuji's Color 200 or whatever, which is all universally processed in C41 chemicals, Seattle Filmworks purchased huge quantities of Kodak's motion picture stock. This film shot just like any other 35mm film, but could not be processed in a normal lab. This was for two reasons. The biggest was that, like all motion picture stock, their film had a layer of black carbon on the non-emulsion side of the film, known as remjet. This was used to cut down the static as the film raced through motion picture cameras at 24 frames per second. The other reason was that the emulsion was developed in ECN2 chemicals, a process similar to C41, but different enough to matter. 
The remjet coating was the reason that the labs wouldn't touch it. This layer of carbon had to first be removed before it could be processed. Otherwise, it would gunk up the machines and generally make a huge mess. If you've ever tried to remove this yourself at home, you can imagine what it would do to a machine in a lab. And while you can remove it yourself pretty easily at home, it is kind of messy if you're you know, kind of getting to the thick of things. So this begs the question, what was Seattle Filmworks film exactly? In the beginning, the company was very upfront about what they were selling. Seattle Filmworks adapted Eastman Kodak's professional motion picture film for still use in 35mm, read a mid-80s newspaper ad. Shoot in low or bright light from 200 ASA up to 1200 ASA with our high-speed 5294 film. They made no bones at all about selling both Kodak 5247 and 5294 motion picture stocks. Not to get too technical, but Kodak 5247 was a 125 ISO emulsion, while 5294 was a 400 ISO. Both were used in such movies as Back to the Future the Empire Strikes Back, and Brother from Another Planet. Give me five, brother. The interesting thing is that both emulsions were tungsten balanced. In other words, it was color balanced for shooting under studio lights. You could certainly shoot it outdoors, but normally you would need a special warming filter to do so. Because most people wouldn't have used a warming filter, Seattle Filmworks probably applied the color correction sometime during the printing process so that the finished photos wouldn't have a blue tint. They also weren't shy about the fact that their emulsions were to be developed in ECN2 chemicals. It stated this on all of their ads through the late 80s. Through the mid-80s, newspapers that ran the ads for Seattle Filmworks were inundated with complaints from people who purchased the film and were unable to get it locally processed. Mrs. JRT from Hartford City, Indiana wrote that she ordered two rolls of Kodak film from Seattle Filmworks only to find out that nobody can process the film, not even Kodak. She wrote to Seattle Filmworks, but never received a reply. This was a fairly common thread running through most of the complaints. The newspaper itself contacted Kodak, who basically told them to contact Seattle Filmworks. In at least this one case, however, Kodak did go the extra mile for Mrs. J.R.T., who I assume is Mrs. J.R. Tolkien. Just as an assumption, I don't know. They sent her an information sheet that explains all of this, including where such film can be developed. Of note was a mention from the Seattle Better Business Bureau, which gave Seattle Filmworks an unsatisfactory performance record. Their reasoning wasn't the processing issues as much as it was customers not receiving their prints after sending their exposed roles into the company for developing. Seattle Filmworks' canned response always stated that the Better Business Bureau just doesn't understand our volume, and that the number of complaints only seemed like a lot until you realize that the company processes 10,000 rolls a day. In 1986, the company grew tired of the complaints. They realized that people had no idea what the ECN2 process actually was. God, this sounds so familiar. It does sound very familiar, yeah. (laughs) So they began to clearly print that local labs could not process this film that it had to be processed by Seattle Filmworks exclusively. And starting in 1990, the ads noted that the processing was available at SFW with limited availability from other labs. And then a year or so later, they just cut the availability of other labs off completely and just stated on their cartridges, process SFW XL. In actuality, there was absolutely no difference between the ECN2 process and SFW XL. This vague new moniker might have been used to deter other similar companies like Clark or York Labs from offering to develop Seattle Filmworks film. Another change happened soon after. Uh, prior to this, the company was upfront about which motion picture stocks they were using. This was the Kodak 5247 and 5294, and they may have switched them off 
in the interim. From 1992 on, however, they stopped telling everybody what it was. The packaging reflected this change, and the film was fully rebranded as Seattle Filmworks 100 and 400. And again, that sounds very familiar with a lot of companies today rebranding film and not telling us what it is. Despite all these weird missteps, the company grew. In 1994, they became the first photo lab to offer images on a floppy disk. While Kodak went with the CD-ROM around the same time, it was deemed too expensive by normal shooters. The floppy disks offered by Seattle Filmworks were a very affordable way to digitize your film photos. This drove even more business to Seattle Filmworks, and by 1997, they were processing up to 20,000 rolls each day. The company was heralded for their excellent service and marketing savvy. Though everything seemed to be going great, it was about to go completely off the rails. By this time, digital cameras were pushing their way into the market. The company stock dropped a bit, but still, market analysts urged investors to buy Seattle Filmworks stock forever. Unless something major happens to this company, they're going to continue to do what they do. And that's something major wasn't the digital photography revolution, now poised to change photography forever, but the company itself. So sometime in the mid-90s, and nobody's really sure when exactly, right when Seattle Filmworks was at its peak output, the company decided to stop using motion picture film. Instead, they'd purchase huge amounts of regular C41 color negative film, like Kodak Gold or Fuji 100 or something like that, and they would roll that onto their cartridges. This meant that from the mid-90s onward, customers could get their Seattle Filmworks film developed at any photo lab anywhere, not just Seattle Filmworks. The film packaging, as well as the newspaper ads, however, continued to claim that the film could only be processed with SFWXL. In other words, they falsely claim that their film could still only be processed by Seattle Filmworks. To make this clear, Seattle Filmworks switched from motion picture film to normal film, but continued to tell everybody that they were still using motion picture film. They at least really implied that they were. This little white lie ensured that even though other labs technically could run the film through the developing machines, they wouldn't for fear of carbon ramjet gunking up the works. But of course, since this was actually just normal C41 film, there was no gunky ramjet. The change to C41 emulsion opened the company up to new film manufacturers. It wasn't just Kodak, but Film Ferrania out of Italy, Fuji out of Japan, and Agfa out of Germany. Astute customers could tell whose film they received by reading the made-in note on the roll itself, though at some point they stopped printing even that. Seattle Filmworks, always looking ahead, also jumped into the internet market of photo sharing. They opened a website called PhotoWorks in the late 90s. By January of 2000, they had completely rebranded the entire company as PhotoWorks. A few months after the name change, six customers filed a class action lawsuit against PhotoWorks. Their complaint stated that PhotoWorks claimed that its film could be processed only by using Process SFWXL, available exclusively at PhotoWorks. Of course, the customers were right. For years now, the film offered by Seattle Filmworks and PhotoWorks was just regular C41 film, which could be developed anywhere. In court, the company admitted that most of the film it had distributed since 1996 can be developed using the C41 process. The settlement essentially doomed the company. They were ordered to pay each of the six plaintiffs 2500 as well as lawyer fees up to 300 but the biggest hit was when they were ordered to give away 900,000 free rolls of film to PhotoWorks customers within one year. Additionally, they had to give another 300,000 rolls to anyone who asked for one in the six months following the settlement. The settlement was a huge blow, but it didn't completely spell the end of PhotoWorks. Sort of. After the lawsuit, the company shrank considerably as the digital market grew. They managed to hang in there as a film processor until 2010 when they were 
were bought out by American greeting cards, who in turn sold the customer list to Shutterfly a year later. It's unlikely that Seattle Filmworks could have survived the digital age, even if they hadn't deceived their customers in the late 90s. But still, it was fun while it lasted. It was. Uh, Vanya, have you ever shot any of this stuff? I have. Once or twice. Okay developed them i mean it was just old so it was a little hazy kind of blue tint but i didn't have um any rem gen on mine it was just regular c41 uh i shot this a lot i shot a lot of this stuff and it was really the only way at the time that if you wanted to shoot color for Anya film it's the only way to get it you'd have to find seattle Filmworks with the made in italy thing on it and then you know oh, i'm shooting for Anya. and if you were found the made in germany one oh i'm shooting agfa so for me the only way to shoot those two emulsions was to find seattle Filmworks from those lots and yeah i, I have a quite a quite a bit of it up on on Flickr. i really dig it because it's it's just good film i mean old color film is is kind of spectacular stuff I remember shooting a roll of it and bringing it into a Photoshop and they're like, oh yeah, we can't touch that. No one can develop this. It's basically obsolete. And I think that's when I decided to start developing my own color. Oh, really? Yeah, so thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I've been fucking up color development ever since. (laughs) I'm looking at eBay right now. Uh, this is very exciting podcasting. And there are there's a number of, of Seattle Filmworks film up here. And there's actually some old stuff. I see some actual motion picture stuff. They have Kodak 6231, which I don't know what that is. And they've got a bunch of the 5247, 5297 stuff up. But most of it is the vast majority of it is is the 200, 400, 100 speed stuff. And it's uh, it goes fairly cheap. So, you know, what? it's only 20 shots per roll, which I think is actually a pretty good amount. I kind of yeah. like 20. So I think I've had my fill of it. So if you guys want to pick it up and try it out for yourselves, you won't be blocking me from from shooting any of it, which is obviously something I, I care a lot about. I don't want to miss out on stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I do know, uh, we didn't mention this earlier, but their uh, Seattle Filmworks for a while offered what would they call a photography school. And I see it up on, on eBay right now. It's Seattle Filmworks Photography School, two binders of 36 cassettes by David Brooks. And this David Brooks fellow uh, would walk you through how to shoot photography in an audio format, which has got to be a crazy thing to do. <laughs> we should totally get it and <laughs> do it. I mean, why not? Can I put that on my resume? <laughs> yes, you absolutely should. Last episode, we challenged listeners to shoot something inside. The rules were, and still are, six objects together, natural lighting, on film. So this was especially new for me, since I don't really ever take photos inside. But I got a lot of knickknacks lying around, and I figured I could come up with something. And I did. So for my shots, and I guess we both shot stuff, and we'll have this up on the show notes. So you can look at these pictures now if you like. Uh, for my shots, I, I sort of forgot about the six items thing, but I wound up using exactly six items anyway. <laughs> I don't know if it was like a subconscious thing, or maybe six is the perfect number. Uh, anyway, my objects were uh, an all-through-a-lens tote bag for the floor. I used a Godzilla figure, a figure of Jyn Erso from Rogue One, the best of the new Star Wars movies, by the way, and a chalkware wall hanging of an anthropomorphic strawberry, which... I love it. Oh, I love it, too. <laughs> And also an all-through-a-lens button, which Godzilla is holding. I've never done anything like this before, but I thought that shooting in 4x5 would be a really good idea. (laughs) And I used Arista Ortholitho film, and this is a tricky film to use, and I shouldn't have done it. 
Well, anyway, it doesn't matter. Everything I shot with, except for like one picture, was too dark because I was essentially shooting macro. And in a 4x5 camera, that means your bellows are extended quite a ways. And I needed to compensate for the loss of light from the bellows being so far extended, but I didn't. I totally forgot about that. And even though it's like usually only a stop or two, it was enough to matter with the ortholitho film. And I shot two on Arista Edu Ultra. So it was a big Arista day for me. What was the Arista ortholitho? What? ISO is that? Six. Oh, okay. Yeah, that is. That's six. So I was doing like four minute exposures and things like that. And I like doing that. I really enjoy doing that. But I needed to do maybe an eight or a 16 minute exposure to compensate for the bellows. So I wasn't really going for anything specific. uh, But the way it all worked out, it seems like I wanted to create and capture the eternal struggle of the lone rebel fleeing a kaiju racing around a giant smiling strawberry. I think it kind of symbolizes the times that we're all going through right now, right? <laughs> it feels that way, honestly. So uh, what, did, what did you end up doing, Vanya? Well, I have decent light in my office. That's exactly where I record as well. Uh, so I s- decided to shoot in the morning next to my window. It's east facing. I had two cameras that had half rolls in them because sometimes (laughs) even 20 is too much. (laughs) The first day I shot with my Canon AE-1, I had some plus X in there from a few walks that I've been taking. So I don't know about all you guys, but we're allowed to walk in our neighborhood. So I've been trying to do that. And it's been very helpful. Actually, Eric and I are on an app and we've been tracking like how many miles we've been doing. It's really fun, actually. <laughs> it, it is. It turns it turns a casually stroll into competition. And why not? <laughs> Eric's winning. I have no idea how, because he's got those tiny little legs. <laughs> I do. So he's going for I'm it. going for it. <laughs> Just a blur from the waist down. So anyways, I had some old Plus X, and I had set it to 50 ISO. I gathered a bunch of knickknacks, because same as Eric, I have a bunch of random shit in my house. <laughs> and then um, I noticed, like, once I was all set up, I was like, why the fuck did I decide... Because I think I decided on six items. Oh, that was like, totally I was like, you, oh, yeah. we should just do this like challenge and let's say six items. You did. That was you. Why? I don't know. <laughs> I didn't question. I've learned that it's just best not to question sometimes. Yeah. So I actually had a lot more difficulties setting up the six items to like play with the light and play with each other as well. Mm-hmm. So anyways, the photos... They came out okay. Uh, Nothing special. You know, it was decent enough. And you can take a look if you would like. The second day, after taking a second look at my pictures that I took the first day, I changed things up a little bit and I ended up getting some matte board. Um, I had a roll of slow meow in my A1. And I decided to try to like bounce some light off of the mat. I used basically the same six items. Mm -hmm. And I think I like these ones better. There's like some emptiness around the image that I really, really like. These little figurines that I have are kind of like placed all over my house in random places. And I like to kind of move things around a ton. I just like little shelves with weird shit and it's fun because people come and look around and they're like god you have like a bunch of strange little things but i enjoy it yeah it's a lot of fun these are all so these are some of my little like salt salt and pepper shakers that i 
have around the house. So are you going to try to do it again with the six items? Um, or are you good with this? And should we try something else? I'm good with this. But I would like other people to try this. I saw that there was a yeah, real quickly saw like, I, you know, this past week has been kind of crazy for me. Um, I did see that one or two other people did do this. And over the yes. next week, I want to share their, their stuff. But yes, keep trying this guys. I, I want I want more people to do this. And if you don't want to, yeah, don't. But you know, if you do want to, if you feel yourself like wanting to be creative and wanting to feel like you're doing something try this yeah why not yeah tag us and we'll make a post with everybody who did the six and i would love to see the difference between the two you know swiping back and forth from like each person yeah. it's it's interesting yeah, i like to see um, that tag us and and uh, for both of us the the author lens account isn't our main account so we're kind of checking it sporadically <laughs> yeah because we're so busy right now <laughs> hey now drop us a line <laughs> and let us know that you're doing this we'd really like to see it yes So, as you know, we're big fans of zines. We do our own zines. We've always loved zines. But right now, and maybe it's because we're all kind of sheltered, we don't have zines coming in. So we have no zines to review, which is a really a big bummer because we love zines. So if you have a zine that's coming out, let us know. And we'll do, a, do you a trade. Or if you want to just send it in, uh, go ahead and do that as well. Just drop us a line if you've got a zine. But instead of doing a zine review... We're going to be talking about a couple of books that we uh, recently picked up about Solomon D. Butcher. Solomon D. Butcher is not a name you come across while researching famous photographers. He was eccentric and a bit of an odd fellow. His style and technique was unconventional and unique. Butcher was born January 24th, 1856, in what we now call West Virginia. In 1860, his father took a job pumping water for locomotives in Illinois. Young Butcher completed high school in 1874, and around that time, he took his first apprenticeship to a tintypist. There, he learned the art and science of photography. He ended up rolling in military school in 1875-1876, and after that, he held a job as a traveling salesman in Clyde, Ohio. In 1880, his father did what many Americans had done before him. He abandoned his secure job and ventured out west to homestead the land and start a new life. Young Solomon decided to accompany his father, and they traveled for seven weeks. This wasn't an easy trip at all. Solomon was sick for half of it, and the trip itself rolled on through the winter. Imagine traveling a thousand miles through the freezing temperatures in a covered wagon. Finally, they arrived in northeastern Custer County, Nebraska, each making a claim. After fashioning a small shelter out of their wagon cover, they built a sod house. Young Butcher, by his own admission, was not suited for pioneering life. And after a two-week occupancy, he turned the land back to the government. Yeah, it didn't only lasted two weeks. And I get it. I think I probably would last about that long. Yeah. Uh, he, he drifted and even attended medical college in Minnesota, though he didn't pursue a career in medicine. He did, however, meet his wife-to-be, a young, newly widowed nurse named Lily Barber. Once married, he and his new wife moved back to Nebraska, where they lived with his father and siblings. He took a teaching job, saved and borrowed enough money to acquire land, built a modest structure, and bought some photographic equipment. This new building was the very first photographic gallery in Custer County. The next year, he opened up a post office in his photo studio and named it Jefferson in honor of his father. Most who have moved west ended up farming, but Butcher disliked this farming life so much that he would do nearly anything and everything to avoid it. Finally, he settled upon his life's work, documenting the history of Custer County. 
But at this time, it was only an idea because he had no savings. He asked his father to help provide him with a wagon to transport his equipment, and he had planned on photographing 75 of the area's farmers in their homesteads. In May of 1886, he turned his post office over to his sister-in-law, and three weeks later, he made his first images. He said, Some called me a fool, others a crank, but I was too much interested in my work to pay any attention to such people. Oh, also, just to let you know, what? his sister closed down the post office like two weeks later. She was like, eh, this is a viable. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> over the next seven years, he made well over 1,500 images along with biographies and stories. He worked on his project when he could, but in the early days when drought would hit, it would drive out farmers as well as Butcher. With a family to support, his history project came to a halt. In 1899, Butcher's sod house caught fire and he unfortunately lost everything. All his stories and pioneer narratives, even the prints he made from the negatives. Luckily, his plates were stored in a nearby granary and were on damaged. Again, penniless, he restarted the task of compiling pioneer accounts and writing several books about the early days in Nebraska and sod houses. Solomon had a unique way of photographing his subjects. Most of his early pioneer portraits were more than just portraits of people. They were somewhat staged with everyone who lived on the homestead placed outside along with their livestock, pets, even some of their most prized possession. One image sticks out is the David Hilton homestead. <laughs> Rather than posing in front of their house, which was an embarrassment to Mrs. Hilton, she had her husband drag the pump organ far enough away from the house so that the structure was out of frame, with the organ taking center stage. I'm looking at the photo right now, and it is, it's it's six family members gathered around a, pi- a pump organ <laughs> with, with a, a team of horses uh, on one side and a cow with a shaken head on the other. Uh, there's a, some kind of farm equipment in the back and you can see the stables in the pasture where the cows are grazing, sort of grazing. There's not much grass here. And she would yeah. rather have all of that in the picture than her sod house. Absolutely. Well, this was to send back east yeah. so she can show like her friends and family that like, look at all this awesome things I have. Yes. And apparently one of those things is not a house. <laughs> so in 1909, Butcher visited Yellowstone National Park and produced 100 stereographic postcards. Uh, he traveled through Colorado and Utah as well, but he never stopped wanting to explore. At one point, he even set his sights in Central America, but that never came to be. By the 1920s, Butcher believed that his series of failures meant that he was simply not a good photographer. And that's something I think we can all really kind of understand. <laughs> Uh, he turned his studio over to his son, and he spent the rest of his life chasing bizarre get-rich-quick schemes. He tried selling flour, he tried patent medicine, and he even tried, even he invented some kind of process for dowsing for oil, which is just silly and doesn't work, but that's kind of where he was. To get himself out of debt, due mostly to his abandoned photographic projects, he sold most of his collection to the Nebraska State Historical Society. By the time he died in March of 1927, he thought of himself as a failure. But selling that to the Nebraska Historical Society was kind of a good idea, because now it's all preserved, and so today, his photographs are cherished and have received much wider recognition than Butcher ever thought possible. His photographs and his writing, which is his books are still available, you can get those for free online, they truly capture what life was like as an American pioneer. The book you've taken a look at, Vanya, is Photographing the American Dream. It's basically the book of Butcher's photos. There's maybe a hundred or so in there. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, you've, You've had this for a little while now. You've got some thoughts. So I definitely want to point out that this is one of the only books I have ever read that I didn't skip ahead to look at the pictures. I know that sounds like completely ridiculous and weird, but this is important. fact about myself because I suffer from some attention issues. So uh, starting a book from the very start and not flipping forward was kind of a big deal. It's pretty cool. So Solomon Butcher was definitely not an ordinary photographer. And you get glimpses of it throughout the book. I found it odd that he drew on his images, but later realized the purpose of doing so. Okay, so by drawing on the photos, he would take it's more etching, I guess, isn't it? He would yeah, he would take yeah, his glass etching. plates, for example. One of his photos is of a hill, and there used to be trees on that hill. And so he took a needle, maybe, and kind of etched trees into the picture. And that would be kind of cool if he was good at etching trees, but he was not. What are you talking about? His trees are awesome. Are you kidding me? He's a very outsider artist, and so it's really fun, but I wouldn't call him accurate depictions of trees. So I think it, I think it gives a picture a, a wonderful quality to it. I think I like it a lot better than I would if somebody was like really good at etching in trees. It would be impressive mm-hmm. if he were good at etching in trees, and now it's just endearing and wonderful. And I'd rather have an endearing, wonderful photo than a technically amazing photo. Well, it makes you think, like, why would he put trees on this hill and there is a story behind it there's a story behind most of his the reasons why he etched on his glass plates i like the turkey on the roof that one's a funny story the turkey on the roof is it's just bizarre it's just bizarre <laughs> and it's such a it's i mean turkeys are ugly to begin with and this just makes like oh God, what a horrible, what a horrible creature. Yeah, but he was trying to erase a mistake in his negative. So he decided to draw (laughs) in a turkey over the mistake. Do you think? And even the people that got the photo were like, there's no white turkeys here. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure there is. And like, somehow he got away (laughs) with, with like explaining away like yeah there was a white turkey on your roof i don't totally a thing i I mean i know it was a big chore to travel out and photograph these people but you think he could have just like reshot it and just like you know what instead (laughs) of like just drawing a turkey on this i'm just gonna go and reshoot it they'll understand and you could even say, look, mother, the choice was reshoot it or draw a turkey. What, would you, what do you want me to do? You know what? I'm glad he drew the turkey. I am too. Though. I think it's very... And you guys will have to look at the book to find the turkey picture now. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best part. <laughs> because literally, when you see it, you're going to be like, there is no possible way that they fell for this shit. No, they didn't. <laughs> no, I, think, I think he had such a personality where he was useful as a photographer. And it kind of seems people maybe wanted to like spend a little less time with him. Maybe. I mean, a lot of these places, he was uh, camped out in their front yards. Yes. You know, and he would take their photo, give them a photo, and he would have a place to stay and they would feed him while, you know, he was developing and shooting. Yeah, but it's a really fun idea for a life then. Oh, absolutely. Especially if you are... <laughs> in the West trying to farm and hate farming. You're like, hmm, what can I do? I know. I'm going to take crooked pictures of people and draw turkeys on them. Yep. So you have another one that you like. Yeah, shooting ducks on Marsh Lake. He wanted to shoot ducks flying off and away from a duck hunter, but the limitations of long exposures stood in the way. To depict this, he took the photo of the duck hunter and later etched the ducks into the glass plates flying away. It's my favorite. I love this picture. <laughs> he also etched the, uh, well, it looks like smoke and flames coming out. Yeah, of- like the pow yeah. <laughs> from the shotgun. <laughs> mm-hmm. He etched the pow in. But the, the etching pictures aren't the only thing that he did. The typical butcher picture is this. It's a family 
gathered outside a dwelling, usually a sod house. Sod, like, has an earthen roof and is generally made of, like, clay bricks. And there is usually seated around the table. And the family's all there, usually just kind of standing there. They'll have their livestock and maybe some other... Helpers. Some helpers. Uh, you'll have... Family dog. A lot of times it's pets. Yeah, yeah, a lot of times there's pets. Um, my favorite photo, if you've ever seen a butcher photo, you've seen this one. It's people outside of a, a sod house and there's a cow on the roof. <laughs> just, just there. It's hard to tell with him if, if it was staged, like, hey, let's get a cow on the roof. Or he just took the picture and didn't really care or notice that there was a cow on the roof. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming that they were like, we should probably get the cow off the roof. And he's like, no, no, no. I don't know. I, <laughs> Leave I, the cow there. <laughs> it's really hard to tell if he knew if he was in on his own game. Because like mm -hmm. now we look at him and we find them endearing and, and beautiful. He didn't. Or at least he didn't care for the success that his photos brought, which was almost none. So I think that he saw other people's work and just didn't think it matched up. And I mean, God, we can all definitely relate to that. But this shows like just real life happening. Like even like if I didn't start the book and really read up on what was actually happening, I think I wouldn't have grasped the pictures as much as I actually did. Yes, some of this obviously and most of it is staged, but a lot of these families, if the weather was nice, everything went outside. The yeah. sod house was just for shelter and sleeping. But you know, they would, they would bring out their tables and, and they would be living out in their front yards. Yeah. And he depicted that. But he also he has a bit of the theatrical flair to him and he just doesn't do it right, but he does it perfectly. There's, his pictures are wonderful. And yeah, there's lens flares. There's light leaks. There's a lot of light leaks. Uh, there's a lot of poor development. There's a lot of poor focus. There's a lot of poor everything here, but that doesn't all add up to bad photos. It adds up to easily in my top five favorite collections of photos. You can view all of them since he sent them to the Nebraska Historical Society. It's available online. It's online archives. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. This website was made, I think, in the 90s. And so the scans aren't huge. They're about two megabytes a piece. And they are so poorly organized that it defies logic and reason. <laughs> It is insanity how they're organized, but definitely worth maybe a half hour of your time just clicking random links of photos and hoping for the best. The book that you got, I think, is a great place to start. I love my book. I definitely recommend it. If you guys are into collecting photo books, this is definitely a good one for the coffee table. We had some things set in place for the podcast before things kind of changed. Yeah, yeah, we did. We had a lot of plans. We had episodes sketched out to what we wanted to do. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. This like springtime seems like such a great time to talk about, you know, travel plans. And we have like all these segments about travel, but we felt that that was maybe kind of mean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're all, like, by law, not allowed to leave, we can leave our houses, obviously, but we can't go out and venture, we can't travel. And so is talking about travel mean at this point? Is it mean to do that? Uh, I know I've been watching quite a few travel shows. Well, one travel show with uh, Richard Ayoade. It's on Hulu, I believe. It's a British show. Really fun, but it does... <laughs> Uh, it is kind of mean to me. It's a little bit of torture. Like, I want to go. I want to go and I can't. 
can't go. So with us doing multiple segments on how to how we plan our trips and how uh, talking about trip planning and you know basing it with photography and all of that, is that mean right now? Is it just rubbing salt in a wound? <laughs> There's two sides to that because it's like, yeah, maybe it is, but also this is a good time to maybe think ahead and think of the positive things that we will be able to do once this all goes back to normal. And it will all go back to normal. We just don't know when. <laughs> And I think that's the mean part. So if it was something like, okay, on May 1st, this is all going to go away, then okay, we would have a set date. We could do this without feeling too mean about it. But since it's kind of open-ended and people are saying, well, maybe the summer, I don't know, maybe fall, it just seems fucking mean. But we might do it anyway. So give us your opinion. You can write us write us uh, a message on Instagram and, and let us know, is it mean to talk about travel at this point? Because we kind of want to, but we don't want to be mean. <laughs> okay, okay, well... I think that's all the podcasts we have for you this week. I think it is. I think it is. Uh, <laughs> tune in next week for a dev party and another week after that for another episode of All Through a Lens. Uh, all right. Well, you made it this far. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail. And we're allthroughalens on Twitter. Sort of. Vanya is at Surf Martian. And Eric is conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag yourself, hashtag all through a lens to be featured. We also do a Spotify playlist for each episode, so check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search all through a lens. And this uh, this episode's playlist is maybe a little bit of a downer, so just a warning there for you. Uh, you can also <laughs> find our episodes on Spotify, as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever the hell else you can find your podcast subscribe and leave us a review the music you're hearing now is from last regiment of syncopated drummers which you can find at lastregiment.com thank you all so much for listening see you in a couple of weeks we love you so vanya yes do you want to go out and shoot i do but we can't <laughs> hey are you ready